Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1 through 16, verse 17, where we have food laws, tithes, the Sabbath year, and festivals. And we're joined today by Dr. Michael Rhodes. Michael Rhodes is lecturer in Old Testament at Cary Baptist College in Auckland, New Zealand. He is the author of this book here, Formative Feasting, Practices and Virtue Ethics in Deuteronomy's Tithe Meal and the Corinthian Lord's Supper. That's published by Peter Lang. And forthcoming in 2023, he has a book called Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. Uh, And he has in uh, that book a chapter on the text that we're going to be considering today, which is also a theme in the formative feasting book. Um, so he's written a lot on this kind of stuff in Deuteronomy, but I actually first came across Michael in an article that he wrote for Christianity Today called Why Don't We Sing Justice Songs in Worship, which is a really helpful article. He looks at the kind of songs that do get sung in Christian worship and how they stack up against the Psalms and shows that justice is a huge theme in the Psalms, even questions being addressed to God. We don't see that very much in Christian worship, which is, um, I think, an important thing for Christians to be thinking about as they're thinking about their worship, but also points to um, the real interest that Michael has in justice, which is going to be helpful for us as we're thinking through this passage. The other reason why I really wanted to have Michael onto the podcast is because uh, he's helped me immensely as I've been thinking through Deuteronomy. We got together at an SBL a couple of years ago, and I said, okay, I think for the next season we're doing Deuteronomy. You're a Deuteronomy guy. Uh, help me think who I should invite. So if you've enjoyed the guests that we've had this season, then you have largely Michael to thank for that uh, in terms of He's recommended a great a number of great guests for us, uh, and we have more to come in the season, so look out for those. All right, Michael, what uh, sparked your interest in the tithe meal and justice in Deuteronomy? It's kind of a long route to the tithe meal, but basically it starts in my childhood. I was raised uh, in a Christian home and in a church that really loved the Bible and taught me to really love Jesus and the Bible, but we also had neglected justice in the Bible and in our lives very flagrantly, particularly on economic matters and matters of racial justice. Our church had a long, really troubled racial history in Memphis. And so when I was a young person, we were kind of trying to recover from our justice failures. And we brought in guys like uh, John Perkins, the founder of the Christian Community Development Association. And he was like, oh, you like the Bible? Good. Here's some stuff that Jesus says about the poor. Uh, What's going on, guys? And so that really changed my life. So Kind of because of that, I studied community development at Covenant College, and for the first seven years of my career, I was working full-time um, for Christian community organizations, working with uh, low-income communities, first in Kenya and then in Memphis. Um, and and I was in Memphis for 12 years, uh, living in a, our South Memphis neighborhood there um, with, with my wife and our four kids. But uh, as I was... Uh, doing this work of trying to help people who were unemployed and and some who had criminal records and who'd been failed by the educational system to like 
get jobs and finish their high school diploma and that kind of a thing. Um, I realized that our churches were not discipling people to participate in that work. So the, the best example is we were trying to help guys with, with violent criminal records find jobs. And people had been discipled to give money to our organization, but a lot of them were hiring managers and nobody had ever discipled them to say, welcome someone with a troubled background into their own workplace. And so I was just like, our discipleship is not oriented towards the justice that God has called us to. And I wanted to know what resources there were in scripture for, for helping the church become just. And so when I went to seminary, um, I took some ethics courses and got really interested by this idea uh, in theological ethics that what we do shapes who we are. This is oh. You know, I'd kind of always been taught, like, you get right thoughts about God. So in this case, justice and God's justice and what God had done for you. And then you kind of automatically live just lives. Hard message for Presbyterians because we're really good on the thoughts and really bad on the lives traditionally. So I knew that wasn't quite right. Um, but there's this theological idea that what you do shapes who you are. I thought, well, maybe that's the way into thinking about just discipleship. But uh, these theologians and ethicists didn't spend much time in the Bible. So I was like, was that true to scripture? So my academic journey has, has been largely exploring, does this idea drawn largely from virtue ethics and ritual ethics, that what we do shapes our character, does that play out in scripture? And so in my dissertation, I looked at two places, two meals, the tithe meal in Deuteronomy 14 that we're talking about today, and 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper. Um, where the text explicitly says that the meal should shape who the people are. So in Deuteronomy 14, you eat the feast to learn the fear of the Lord. So it's fear of the Lord, uh, which we can talk about is a, it has a strong character element to it. So you eat the feasts to acquire this fear of the Lord. Um, and in first Corinthians, Paul talks about how uh, they're gathering for the worse. They're becoming worse through the way they're, uh, miseating the Lord's Supper with the obvious implication that they should be gathering for the better. So that's how I got into biblical studies and specifically these texts about meals. Um, and, and, and really that interest in, in formation and, and how scripture might shape God's people and invite God's people into practices and disciplines that shape us um, for justice continues to drive most all my academic interests. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how this conversation plays out, because if I were thinking about justice in the Bible, Deuteronomy 14 would not be the first place that I would go, you know? <laughs> you might think uh, Amos or, you know, other places, but uh, but not here. So, But we're going to see how it is a, a really important mm. theme here. Yeah. Um, Michael, could you go ahead and just to acclimate us to this passage, give us a brief overview of what we encounter between Deuteronomy 14.1 and 16.17. Uh, yeah, so in 14.1, you begin with this kind of note about the people not cutting themselves for the dead, which appears to be a reference to other worship practices that are outlawed. And the rationale for that is that the people are holy um, and set apart. And so then 14.3 and following, you get this long description of what they're allowed to eat as a holy people, as befits their holiness. Um and that goes through 21. In 22, 14, 22 through uh, 27, you get another set of food issues, but this time it's laws about the 
uh, annual tithe. So the giving of the tithe of their harvest and the firstborn of their livestock. Um, 1428 through the end of 14 says that in the third year, they do something different. So it gives another tithe, but it, scholars call it the triennial tithe because it's the third year tithe. There's a different practice. Um, and then you get a series of laws related to um, debt forgiveness and slave release in 15, uh, 1 through, I think it's 18. Um, and then you get kind of a strange return to the question of the first the, the giving of the firstborn of the livestock before returning in 16.1 to a really thorough explanation of Israel's festival calendar. So the three major festivals that Israel is to celebrate throughout the year. So, you know, it's, it's what you can eat, uh, how you give the food in the context of worship, these laws about just economic practices and debt, and then a return to the festival calendar in 16. Yeah, so food, festival, and justice, we're already seeing these interlocking themes in this passage as it lays out. How do you see the issues addressed here in Deuteronomy 14 through 16, like the tithing, the meals, the economic justice, the festivals? How are these issues, how is this passage tied into the rest of Deuteronomy as a whole? Uh, so there's a couple of major structural connections. One is a big theme in Deuteronomy is the centralization of worship. So sacrifices and offerings and all of that is now going to take place in, in the place where the Lord will choose to put his name there. And so that's a major movement that's happening in Deuteronomy, a major theme and an emphasis. And so um, that means all your sacrifices have to be brought to that central place. And so uh, the tithe stuff is related to the majority case where you bring those to the central sanctuary and the one exception where you don't, which is interesting, which we can talk about. Uh, the food laws are also related to that because since Deuteronomy says you have to bring your sacrifices to this central location, um, whereas in Leviticus, all the meat that you eat has to be sacrificed essentially with, with very few exceptions. In Deuteronomy, there's this expansion where actually – you can slaughter meat and eat it where you are without bringing it to the sanctuary. So the food laws are sort of saying, okay, so you can eat anywhere, but let me remind you, you can eat all these things, right? And so uh, there's a bunch of kind of, and then the festival calendar obviously is about pilgrimages to that central place. So a lot of it is this centralization theme. Um, at, a, at another structural level, a previous guest, I think, talked about the idea that the law code, this is right in the middle of the law code of Deuteronomy, is an unpacking of the Ten Commandments. And so there are arguments about where this fits. Um, the debt forgiveness laws certainly seem to fit in the, as an unpacking of the Sabbath law. Um, and then there's debates about where the food laws fit. But the structuring of time is really important from the tithe meal all the way through to the end of the festival calendar. And then a major kind of theological thing is Deuteronomy is all about how do you become a people who maintain exclusive allegiance to the Lord? How do you remember? How does the next generation stay faithful? And these texts are all about that idea. So the festival calendar is about this uh, sort of annual reenactment of the journey out of Egypt 
to Sinai into the promised land. And, and that's designed so that you, your, your body is learning to remember. And the way that you eat is also designed to, to foster you to remember the Lord and what he's done for you so that you will live faithfully to the Lord, but also so that you will love your neighbor in very specific ways. So the, the festival calendar and the debt legislation play a major role in Israel's ethics and in their ethic of becoming a certain sort of people who do justice, their neighbors and love the Lord with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. Michael, what do you find most difficult to understand about this passage, Deuteronomy 14 through 16? I mean, let's say you can, if you, if you must, you can pick the logic of, you know, which, which animals are permissible to eat and which are not. That's, that's fine. But if you pick that one, you have to pick something else as well. How about that? Uh, it's definitely that one. Uh, <laughs> why why uh, is like it? Anybody... So, the, the logic of why you eat what you can eat has been like something that stumped uh, readers of this text all the way back. So in the all the way back, as far as we know that people are reading these texts into the ancient period, people have scratched their head a bit as to why you can eat these things and not those things. And we could talk about that more um, yeah. about what what answers people have put forward i am completely dependent on other people's answers when it comes <laughs> to that question. Uh, uh the other thing uh, something that i've thought a lot about uh and and know some things about but that continues to puzzle me is the relationship between these um debt slave liberation laws and other laws that touch on debt slave liberation in the torah so you get laws for liberation in the sabbath year in exodus and then again in leviticus 25 and in terms of their ethics they're all super complementary but in terms of how they would actually function uh there seem to be some tensions mm -hmm. and so one way to resolve that is to buy to, is to talk about the nature of law right that the nature of these laws is um uh i think it's uh, josh Josh, Joshua Berman puts it more like common law and less like statutory law. So maybe these legal texts aren't to be followed out to the rigidly to the letter, which is what laws mean in our society, but rather our record of common precedent, wise precedent. So maybe the tensions don't really matter all that much. Mm. Um, but there have been proposals that like the release of, of slaves in Leviticus 25 in the year of Jubilee is referring to different sorts of arrangements. So maybe Leviticus 25 is imagining a situation where the entire household has gone into debt slavery, whereas Deuteronomy 15 is envisioning a situation where one member of the family is working off a of debt. And when you get into that level of detail, I tend to get bewildered. So that's something <laughs> that continues to kind of stress me out a little bit. <laughs> All right. Well, you opened the door for us to ask you about the food laws. So we're going to do that now. Tell okay. us a little bit about the various theories that have been proposed and maybe which you find most compelling. Yeah, so I think the thing that needs to be said loudest here is that in Deuteronomy, in this text, and in Leviticus, what we know for sure is that the food laws have something to do with holiness, right? So the people's identity as a set-apart people, as a holy people, as a people who dwell in uniquely close proximity to Yahweh, that is the theological rationale for the food laws. And you get that in Deuteronomy 14 
um, where you get a reference not only to the fact that the people are holy, but that they are the Lord's treasured possession, which is really, you know, significant language um, in the Old Testament for Israel's uh special unique vocation and life with god so we know that somehow <laughs> these eating rules are about israel having kind of a, a holy identity and i think another thing that's interesting to think about then is that is to think about not just what they mean as a symbol system which obviously is the complicated part but to think about what they do so whatever they mean, whatever Israel is allowed to eat some animals, not others, the function of having these intense laws is to make Israel extremely thoughtful about the act of eating, especially the act of eating that depends on taking the life of other creatures. Mm -hmm. So they're forced to be thoughtful about the complicated matter of killing an animal for the sake of eating. Um, so there, there's, they, they foster a, a care and attention to eating as a, as a practice, but also, um, they force Israel to be consciously cultivating a countercultural identity. We are different than them precisely by what we eat. And so the act of eating and monitoring what one eats and thinking about what one eats, what it does is it creates a counterculture. You know, um, Mark Scarlatta's got a great book on on Leviticus where he talks about this, and he uses the the, the analogy of of being a, a vegan, which is an often an ethical and sort of political statement. But if you think about what a vegan has to do in a restaurant when they're invited to a dinner party, they're constantly kind of like. Um, monitoring evaluating discriminating you can think about the social pressure that can 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 come about there and maybe that's a glimpse into how these laws whatever the rationale underlying them is a part of how israel becomes a distinct people and that idea of being a counterculture is something that in our society um we're liable to turn our noses up at we don't like that idea of being sort of set apart but um in the worldview of deuteronomy the way that Israel becomes a vehicle of God's blessing to all the nations, right? So the way that God gives blessings to everyone through this people is by them being different. So mm -hmm. earlier in Deuteronomy, you get that wonderful line where God says, uh, when you follow my law, the nations will look over the fence and say, whatever people has a God so close to them and what other people has laws so righteous and wise and just as this people. So Israel's identity is set apart, is central to not only their ethics and their theology, but their mission, God's use of them to bring blessing to the nations. So whatever else you say about the food, it's definitely about holiness and it serves this practical function of making them be thoughtful about eating um, especially the expense of other creatures and to set them apart all that i think we can be fairly comfortable and confident about why these foods well there's been a number of uh theories that have been proposed um i think going back to the work of mary douglas um there's this idea that, that the israel in the food laws they're supposed to discriminate and distinguish and divide into kinds and those kinds are related to the sky and the land and the sea so there seems to be a lot of creational overtones there um and it may be that israel has this idea that there's certain kind of ideal types for birds and 
sea creatures and land creatures. And so the holy creatures, the creatures that Israel can eat, are the creatures that fit that ideal type. Mm-hmm. That's fairly plausible, if somewhat obscure as a rationale for us. Um, there's an ancient perspective that some of them are ethical. So, you know, in Israel, you can eat the animal with the blood in it because the life of the creatures in its blood. And again, this seems to be tied to Yahweh's desire that Israel have a real reverence for life, a real reverence, even for the, the lives of the creatures that they eat. And so an ancient interpretation is like with the birds, the birds that they're not allowed to eat are sort of like predatory birds that would be kind of really into killing and eating sort of bloody meals. And so it's kind of, you're separating yourself even from animals that Mm. depart from this kind of reverence for life. I think that's kind of an interesting take on, on the animals. Um, Those would be the ideas that I would gravitate towards. Of course, historically, there's been a lot of suggestion that the food things are about idolatry or even about hygiene. Scholars have largely said that that's not really trackable. Um, Mm. And so I think there is something about the symbol system and purity and, and, and ideal types, and maybe also certain kinds of animal behavior that drive these distinctions. All right. That was well done. I mean, about as well done as anyone could do on this question. Uh, I, I did, it did strike me as you were talking about the ethnic identity being communicated for food that when you think about at least modern American life, mm-hmm. We talk about ethnic identity in the context of food probably as much as yes. anything else, right? We're going to go eat yes. Mexican. We're going to go eat Chinese, right? We, yeah. we don't say, you know, we don't talk as much about Chinese clothing or Chinese art mm. or things, but Chinese food and Mexican food. And, you know, so, and even subcultures like Tex-Mex and, other, you know, I live, we live here down in the mm. South, right? You've got Southern food, low country. So I don't know. It's just striking that that food is a way in which, to identify people people identify themselves and we identify others through the foods that yes. they eat yeah. uh, yes so- and to think about the cultural and moral significance of that you can think about the story of daniel where you know mm-hmm. re- resistance to one culture's food associated right. with nebuchadnezzar's imperial power and embrace of a israelite diet of some sort is like part and parcel of daniel resisting idolatry uh promoting justice uh, and and remembering his identity, mm-hmm. you know, so I think you're exactly right. And for Israel, that matter of identity is always deeply theological and moral, um, in some ways, even more than it is like ethnic, right? It's mm-hmm. about fostering kind of a certain group identity. Yeah. So can you draw some themes of justice out of these food laws as well? What I think is interesting on this justice question is that uh there's there's nothing wrong per se about about these other creatures that you're not allowed to eat and we know that because um at the end of for the food laws uh israel's being told you can't eat anything that dies of itself because that's unclean but you can share that with the immigrant Hmm. right so the most vulnerable person in society has access to that meat that's important and could be really valuable for them in their diet even though you don't do that because that doesn't fit this countercultural identity yeah. and so um nelson has this great line that he says in this line deuteronomy manages to blend its humane social ethics with its insistence on a sharp ethnic boundary and i think hmm. that's exactly right so you get something of the glimpse 
Israel is to be set apart, but even in that set apartness, they're looking for ways um, to care for the most vulnerable and particularly the kind of refugee, the dependent outsider. Well, let's move on to the tithe laws in chapter 14, verses 22 through 29. And in verses 22 through 27, we read of an annual tithe. So we read this in verse 22. Set apart a tithe of all the yield of your seed that is brought in yearly from the field. Now, when contemporary Christians think of tithing, they primarily envision giving 10% of their earnings to support the work of their church or something like that. Uh, How well does that understanding of tithing or how well does it not uh, fit with what's described here in Deuteronomy, you think? Yes. So what's really intriguing is that idea that you bring kind of a tenth, which functions Mm -hmm. as sort of an almost religious tax uh, that primarily pays for the work of the religious institution is one way to think about tithes in the Bible. Um, And in the ancient world, uh, the tithes were were seen as essentially religious or uh, political taxes. So in 1 Samuel uh, 8, Samuel warns the people that the king would levy tithes uh, on, on the people. So, so that idea sort of fits some of what's going on in the ancient world. And ancient people were probably as hyped about that kind of tithe as the typical Christian is when their pastor starts talking about tithing, right? It's a tax. <laughs> it's not very nice. No one's really thrilled about it. What's amazing is that Deuteronomy completely goes in a different direction. Because in Deuteronomy 14, 22, what you do is you bring the full tithe. And, you know, I can hear the Israelites groaning. <laughs> and the firstborn of all your life's like, ah, oh, this is terrible. And you bring it to the sanctuary where all those religious personnel are. They're really bummed out. You know, this is like terrible news. And then the turn what you do there is in the presence of the Lord your God, you shall eat the tithe of your grain and your wine and your oil and the firstlings of your herd and flock. So the tithe is transformed. The tax that you owe Yahweh is surrendered to him. And then he immediately gives it back to fund this enormous meal. I mean, just think about 10% 10% of your annual harvest <laughs> consumed at this feast and, and, and 10% are, are the firstborn of all your flocks, you know, all your cows and sheep and whatever else that have had uh, given birth to children, the firstborn, all of them, you're slaughtering and eating together in this massive party, you know, and, and the text really goes on and on about that later on. It's going to give three different words for alcoholic beverages, right? Wine, strong drink, strong, you know, like it is really going over the top to say, you're going to bring this tax that you're really unexcited about, you know, stewardship Sunday. And then all of a sudden it's given back to you as this massive feast, you know? Uh, So it's, it's complete, it's a completely different conception of the tithe here in Deuteronomy 14. Is it even responsible to consume one tenth of your harvest all at once? So, I mean, I think there's a couple of ways to respond to that. One is um, the entire sacrificial system is in some sense about being irresponsible, right? Like when you do a whole burnt offering, you're taking food that you need to eat or an animal that is like the tractor and you're fully giving it over to God. And then here in the celebration, you are feasting ridiculously. Um, in the harvest season. Um, And there is a sense in which it is an act of um, dependent irresponsibility, right? Mm -hmm. You can feast this way because of what Yahweh has done. 
And what's interesting is, you know, you re read a lot of like older commentaries. Sometimes they'll say, well, like, obviously most of it stayed behind with the priests, right? <laughs> this is hyperbole. Um, but, you know, there's a, a, a food in the Hebrew Bible group at the Society of Biblical Literature that has been super helpful to me. And one thing that those guys do is they go look at anthropological writings and actually in a bunch of sort of, um, to use kind of an unfortunate word, pre-modern societies, uh, there are these kinds of harvest feasts and they do eat enormous amounts of food and drink all at a go. And it's part of how the community becomes who they are and celebrates, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the Christian uh, Dutch economist Bob Hotsfard once said that the horizon of Israel's economy is not endless growth. The horizon of Israel's economy is the feast. That's mm -hmm. how you know the year has ended well is that you have this massive party you know and, and you can see why i like this text yeah. yeah and that's very different than i think like you know uh you know many uh, let's say christian experiences with the lord's supper are you get mm. this tiny thimble uh, <laughs> you know of wine or juice i should say maybe and or this little sip of wine and you get a little you know wafer or you know um well and i think that's 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 one of my um sort of uh hidden curriculum in in all of this work is that you know there are in my mind there are no symbolic meals in the bible there is no time where the people eat a ritual meal like we do at the lord's supper and what's important is these meals do enormous theological work uh community building work ethical work and all the work that they do is partially dependent on them being actual meals. Hmm. The reason why Paul is so worried that the Corinthians Lord's Supper is making them worse, and the reason why he holds out hope that he can make them better, is in part tied to the fact that this is an actual meal that feeds bodies in right. community around a table. And so I actually think, um, very few people have taken me up on this, but I actually think one of the most obvious implications of my research for the church uh, for religious communities in general, is to at least occasionally celebrate our sacred meals as actual meals. Because yeah. you're absolutely right. Like the way that this tithe feast does what it does is by giving the people this massive feast and the best wine of the year on the table, right? In this context. Yeah. Let's move on to the every third year tithe mm. that is described in 14 28 and 29 is this different in some way yeah and Besides i think the I need fact to that say, it's every third year yeah I, I think i need to point out uh something important about this meal before we move there will which is that um in in the tithe feast it's like you bring all your stuff to the sanctuary the obvious problem is what if it's a long way away Right. Yeah. And so Jerry says, well, what you do then is you sell it up country, you bring the money to the sanctuary and you buy whatever you deeply desire, which is, again, mm. tells you a lot about what this feast is about. You can buy whatever you want. You know, <laughs> it's, it's your menu, baby. Uh, it's like really <laughs> over the top. Um, but there is one constraint in the tithe feast. There's only one requirement, and that's that you eat it in the Lord's presence by household. It's easy for us to skate past household, but in Deuteronomy, the household is not just your nuclear family, it's your entire extended family, and it's it's all of the people who've become attached to your family, including the orphan, 
the widow, the refugee, the landless Levite. Hmm. And so, um, you know, God is, gives them basically a blank check for funding the party and organizing the party. But he is really hung up that the entire community, including the most vulnerable, participate at this feast. And um, my friend Mark Glanville has, has written uh, a remarkable book called Adopting the Stranger as Kindred. I think that's what it's called on the outsider in Deuteronomy. And he makes the point that this is how the outsider, the refugee, becomes attached to the household. This is how they become us is at the feast. And so there's this massively important community formation, inclusion element. This is how the people become a people where the poor have a place at the table is by literally putting the poor in a seat at the table. All of that is important for understanding what happens in the triennial tithe, which is completely different because in the triennial tithe, you actually don't go to the central sanctuary, which is remarkable in and of itself. Deuteronomy is saying all the offerings, all the tithes, all the first things, everything comes to the central sanctuary. Oh, wait, one exception. In the third year, you take everything you owe me and that you usually use for the big party and you store it up in your villages. And that third year tithe becomes emergency food aid for the vulnerable all year long. Hmm. So the idea is you become family with the vulnerable at the table. And then having become family, you create safety nets and structures that provide for those vulnerable people in day-to-day life. And um, scholars and engineers tell us this is the world's first um, tax exclusively directed to the welfare of the poor. So that idea of a safety net in human history, as far as we know, it begins here, right? Mm. And it, it's practiced by people who are becoming family at the table becoming family at the table of the generous divine king. And so there's a lot going on there. Um, but what you're seeing is this need to make sure that the people most likely to fall through the cracks are taken care of through this triennial tithe. And if you're tracking, that means that you get this massive party every year, except for every third year, you surrender that for the sake right. of the poor. Right. And so those two things you are skip Christmas, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You skip Christmas every third year to fund the welfare safety net for the people, right. you know. But you struggle. you you want to do that because in those other two years you've partied with those people, right? They're yes, your people. That's right. That's right. Uh, and then that third year you provide for them, and then you continue to build the relationship and then provide. And so it's yes, not because I right. think you know we can fall off that horse on one side or the other. Yes. In terms of, oh, we only want the relationship. We only want a party. I mean, that's easy side of the horse yeah. to fall off of. <laughs> but you can also fall off on the other side is which I just want to yeah. provide for people, but I don't want to actually yes. relate with yes. them. I don't want to have relationships yes. with them. Yeah. Yes. And actually like um, uh, the, if you, if you study uh, Israel's or the new, I mean, the Bible's economic ethics in its own world, uh, the most striking distinction between what they do and what we do is that we envision religious communities as basically class segregated institutions that deliver services to people over there so your church will talk about caring for the poor uh as if that is a group that is not present uh largely because it is a group of people that are not present uh whereas the first line of defense in 
the Bible's economic ethics all the way through is that the most vulnerable people are us, that they belong here, that they are a part of us. And I think um, this isn't just a church problem. This is a society problem. Uh, the, the kind of charity that we gravitate towards in our current economic arrangement is the kind of care that keeps people at arm's length. And the Bible just, just it is it's completely alien to the imagination of a text like this. Um, and it's one reason why these texts are so explosive if we pay attention to what mm. they're doing. Mm. Uh, well, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, we come to the Sabbath year, and uh, it deals primarily with the sabbatical year, like I've just said. So in 15 verse 1, we read this, every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts. So let's start with a practical question. <laughs> How was this supposed to work? I mean, you know, I can, there, the, the text itself imagines an objection, right? That someone might raise. Mm. Um, and the text anticipates it. Like in verse nine, right? Someone is imagined as saying, why would I give a loan if the seventh year is coming, right? And we're all close to the seventh year and I'm going to have to basically forgive this debt. It's not likely to be repaid. Why should I, you know, give that debt? So, you know, there are practical questions here, right? Like wh why... Uh, was this Sabbath year um, envisioned? And like, was it actually practiced? Great question. So, well, that's a lot of questions actually to answer. <laughs> so um, on the one hand, the most interesting thing to me here is the triennial tithe uh, tends to, I think both the debt forgiveness and the triennial tithe flow out of the feast. So you become family, you go with your village, and all the households in your village, you celebrate with the generous king, Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth. And then here are the economic implications that shape your calendar going forward. So on the one hand, there's people who are in danger of falling through the cracks between households, orphans, immigrants, widows, landless Levites. They have access to emergency food at the triennial tithe. Now the text turns to economic threats facing households which primarily have to, to deal with the viability of agrarian farm households uh, when they face the kind of obstacles that agrarian fam farm family households have faced across history and into today. And one thing that agrarian farm family households need is access to uh, short-term credit loans, right? And um, scholars, uh, Roland Bohr uh, has created, I think, a helpful distinction um, between uh, what he calls credit and debt. So debt being the kind of predatory lending practice that aims at the benefit of the lender. Um, so if you think about uh, in our culture, uh, secondhand uh, shady uh, car dealerships, mm -hmm. some of them, their, their, their business model depends on them lending the car and then repossessing it multiple times. So only reason why they're making that loan is in hopes that the person defaults, right? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of debt um, that Israel is completely against and that we know was common in the ancient world. And we know it was common in the ancient world because apparently it was common practice to burn up loan contracts when they got paid off. And we archaeologists have dug up a bunch of loan contracts, which tells us that they weren't ever paid off, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that this was a problem. Um, but uh, and, and the collateral that, that this predatory debt could be aimed at could be land, but it also could be labor, because one way you pay off the predatory debt is through debt slavery, which this text is obviously concerned about. The problem is farmers really do need loans. And so 
four talks about this other kind of category of credit, which is kind of in a village, if I have more, I will lend of my excess to you on this occasion. And in a lot of times, there's a reciprocity here. You'll try to pay me back. And then on a later occasion, if you have more and I have less, you'll lend to help me take care of my need. And so this is really important. And so um, Deuteronomy, like all of the Torah, wants to shore up an economic system where all these households are, are, are in this kind of relatively equitable arrangement. Every family has access to land. They stay on the land. And you don't have this emergence of a uh, permanently rich class and a permanently poor class. So Deuteronomy 15 strikes at that. You, you need to give the loans, but you have to forgive them, right? Now, what's interesting is in the ancient world, you have a lot of examples for a long period of time of announcements of debt relief, right? Just like this announcement of debt relief. The difference is that in the ancient world, they are sporadic, occasional, and announced by a ruler, Okay, so typically when a ruler comes to power, he's like, how do I get people to like me? Mm -hmm. I'll forgive the debts, you know, or I'll release the slaves or I'll give back the land. So Deuteronomy is 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 taking that idea and radically transforming it, because now there is no human king. There's only Yahweh, the divine king. He takes that idea and fixes it in time. So you the entire economic system is now transformed by this practice of debt relief and slave release. But of course, by not being sporadic, that raises the question of, well, people aren't going to want to do it, right? Mm -hmm. You've brought up, Ronnie. And so I think what's most remarkable here is that Deuteronomy, unlike our society, doesn't counter that problem by offering more legislation. Okay, so we're gonna, you know, create a post of debt investigator who's gonna come around and, you know, <laughs> we're, it, no, there's no government office. It's just you better not have such a wicked, evil heart, such a greedy, stingy eye, because the Lord will come after you if you do. And at the heart of this is Deuteronomy's recognition, uh, and again, this is explosive for us today. Uh, just laws are necessary but not sufficient. Just laws in a society of unjust people will ultimately prove powerless to deliver the kind of justice that we need. You need just laws, and you also need just people. And so Deuteronomy's response is like, yeah, of course, wicked people will find ways to screw over their neighbors, even with these great just laws. So they got to become just people. And if you're tracking this long spiel I'm giving... This is exactly the interest that drove me to the text, right? How do we become just people? And I think that part of the answer is you are becoming just people through this feast. So one way in Deuteronomy 15, you have this massive, uh, sudden, explosive, recurring use of the word brother, 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 lend to your brother who is poor, your brother, don't be hard hearted to your brother. That's not been happening in Deuteronomy so far. All of a sudden it's brother, 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 brother. Why? Because classism class segregation tends to create an us them mentality and Deuteronomy is saying you're not allowed to think about the poor that way these are your siblings and you have to treat them like siblings but what's remarkable is that the way you learn to treat people like family who aren't your family is by feasting with them so again these household heads that you have to lend to and then you have to forgive their debt are people that you're journeying to the central sanctuary to party with 
And the debt slaves that you have to release every seventh year and get them set up on their own are people that are literally feasting with you year in and year out. So again, the power of the feast to shape this kind of community where we treat each other like Ken undergirds this economic thing. How do we reconcile verse four? So verse four says, there will be no one in need among you because of the Mm. way that the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Um, But then later in the passage in verse 11, it talks about, you know, the need to give liberally and be ungrudging because in verse 11, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth. And I think the NRSV is being a little cheeky here because it's the same Hebrew word there that they translate earth there, which is land earlier. Yes. It seems like a contradiction though. Uh, So how do you put these two together? Yeah. And it's even more complicated because in in verse seven, you have an, if there is someone among you need. So you have there will be no, or perhaps there need be no poor among you. And then an if, and then a there will always. And of course, this is really interesting to your Christian audience because uh, Jesus quotes the last part, the poor you always have with you, or a version of it. And that becomes like one of America's favorite passages when it comes to the (laughs) poor, (laughs) justifying uh uh apathy right they're always going to be here so don't be too stressed about it right what's funny about that is that in the context of deuteronomy uh the shoe is on the other foot this text is really concerned about the poor so how do you think about this well one way is to think about it um in terms kind of that i just alluded to there there shouldn't be poor among you uh but there will be because you guys are hard-hearted jerk faces um that's one way to take it but actually i think a better way to think about it is that, um, and uh, one scholar points out that that in uh, um, Deuteronomy, the orphan, the immigrant, the widow are never called the poor. Um, they're never lumped in with the poor as they are elsewhere. And he makes the point that it may be possible, it may be impossible to eliminate uh, orphans and immigrants and widows to so create a world in which there are no orphans and immigrants and widows but it is possible to create a society in which the orphan and the immigrant and the widow are not poor sufferers mm-hmm. and drawing on a similar idea i think what's going on here is deuteronomy is saying there will be and need be no permanently poor among you harvest will fail people will move ancient boundary stones and encroach on their neighbor's lands one generation of farmers will be incompetent stuff happens right there will be temporarily poor people all the time but there shouldn't and need not be any permanently poor among you Mm. if you create the kind of society which these safety nets create fixed resets and of course i think these that that works really well as well for the year of jubilee where you have a massive fixed reset in relationship to land so that's how i read that that line right well Let's turn to the festivals now in chapter 16, verses 1 through 17, and we have three major festivals that are described for us, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Uh, In verses 16 through 17, there's a summary. Uh, It says this, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, at the festival of weeks, and at the festival of booths. 
They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. All shall give as they are able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Now, are these festivals uh, similar to the tithes that we've discussed, you know, earlier, or are they different? What, how, how do they compare? Yeah, that's a question that that is not has not been solved. Um, we don't really know if they bring the tithe kind of at whim, or I kind of think it's most likely that the tithe would have been brought at one of these festivals, or maybe across all of these festivals, right? So. I sort of read the tithe legislation as kind of contemporaneous with the festival calendar, um, but we're not exactly sure how they how they sync up. But there's obviously deep similarities between the kinds of pilgrimage feasts envisioned here and the kind of pilgrimage feast we were talking about with the tithe festival. And uh, at these festivals, we have in the description of the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths, this mention of male and female slaves, as well as the Levites, the strangers, the orphans, and the widows resident in your towns. They're explicitly said to be included yes. in the festival. Yes. What is the significance of including these other people within the community? The significance of their inclusion, again, is um, um, Deuteronomy. I mean, Deuteronomy gives us, the, the in some ways like the, some of the strongest justice ethic in the Bible. Um, and it depends on, it is a family ethic. And so the question is, how do you keep people treating each other like family? And so the feasting is a huge part of that. Um, there's actually more to it than that, though, because uh, all these feasts are, are learning, you know, you're learning to fear the Lord, you're learning to honor the Lord, you're learning to love the Lord and, and to care for your neighbor. And that learning is happening through your body, right? Mm -hmm. Through the act of eating, through the act of journeying together, through the act of feasting and drinking and worshiping together. And the part that Deuteronomy 16 adds to this is that you can see that this series of pilgrimages takes the Israelites' bodies on a reenactment of the core events of the Exodus. So very similar to the way that the liturgical churches you know, from Advent through Pentecost, for the most part, are celebrating kind of a reenactment of Jesus's life. Um, the Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Booths, in some ways, are a reenactment of the liberation from Egypt. So Deuteronomy, which is obsessed with memory, and which is obsessed with passing on the memory of Yahweh's liberation from Egypt to the next generation, is giving them a ritual festival thick calendar that's going to teach their hearts and brains and bodies that God liberated their ancestors from Egypt. And so the inclusion of vulnerable people is significant because there's a sense in which they can come to see that they too are a part of that story. But it's also really significant because the Torah is going to say again and again, Israelites have to treat the orphan and the immigrant and the widow and the poor and the outsider uh, well, they have to do justice for them precisely because they know what it's like to be oppressed from their time in Egypt and God took care of them. So the memory of the oppression in Egypt, which the Passover walks them through, and the journey out into the wilderness in weeks and booths, is part of how they become people who empathize with and care for their the most vulnerable among them. Again, the way they see them as in some sense us. So there's a lot of significance to that. 
Yeah. I also find it striking in that summary statement that Ronnie just read, you get in verse 17, all shall give as they are able, according yes. to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So there's a reciprocal nature here, right? Yes. God has given to you, so you shall give. And then yes. that's that how we interpret as they are able. I mean, is that a really high bar or is that a low bar? What do you think? For me, I think, gosh, I think if you probably depends on the reader, right? <laughs> if you're if you're someone like us. Um, who are part of the wealthiest society uh, ever to exist on planet Earth, you might go, dang, I'm able to give a lot more. Uh, if you're on the bottom of the social pyramid, you might be going like, whatever I have is is good enough. But the emphasis in Deuteronomy is that there's going to be so much, right? There's going to be just this ridiculous abundance. And so you're going to be able to give because God gives generously. Then you're going to give generously. And then God's going to give generously. And then you're going to give generously to the poor. And God's going to see that. And so he's going to give generously. And it's just going to be this giant, abundant festival thing, right? That's the vibe. That's why in this text you hear again, you will rejoice. You will rejoice. Uh, you will rejoice. And so from Deuteronomy's perspective, uh, giving according to the blessing the Lord has given you is going to be an abundant gift. And it's going to be a good gift to give because you're giving it to a king who's so generous, he tends to give it right back like he does at these festivals. You know, this is another thing that I just, as an aside, I think is obscured in the way we do like the Lord's Supper, like the, the theology of the Lord's Supper and the theology of these Israelite feasts is the food on the table is a gift from God. And it is. But of course, if you're a farmer who raised that cow or sheep and worked that land, you know that the food that God is giving you as a gift is also a gift that you produced and gave to God. Hmm. So our work, our offerings, our life are given to God, and yet they are also gifts of God. And that reciprocity is lived out at the table in a way that is profound and is lost when what's on the table is not only a little bit of wine, a little bit of bread, but a little bit of wine, a little bit of bread that somebody picked up at the supermarket, right? Like yeah. on the way there, you know, it just all gets lost, you know? Yeah. Well, Michael, uh, that's great. Thanks for taking us on this tour of uh, Deuteronomy 14 through uh, 16. And, um, you know, at the end, we like to ask our guests to give us a blurb, right? It could be anything. It doesn't have to be a book. We have guests who give us these duct tape wallets and <laughs> horse mats and all kinds of bars of soap yes. and, you know, uh, but it could I be think a book. We mentioned the duct tape wallet yeah, every no, single yeah. week since Wayne Baxter. Thanks, Wayne. We appreciate it. I know. But do you have yeah. something that you'd recommend? It could be a hack. It could be something you found at the, I don't yes. know, the hardware store. Well, um, you could tell Brent it's definitely not going to be horse mats. What the heck, <laughs> uh, so I have two. I have two. The first is I, I just want to say I love the Two Testaments podcast. I loved Carmen Imes' interview, but I was a little bit disappointed that you guys kept her heretical statement at the end <laughs> that a certain contemporary fiction author was going to leave uh, the Chronicles of Narnia behind. That really got my ire up. <laughs> <laughs> uh kind of forgot all the wonderful things you said carmen and there at the end but it did make me think that for my endorsement i would give a, a work of fantasy so um susanna clark 
is an author of fantasy literature. Her landmark first book was called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. It won a ton of awards. And it's basically like Harry Potter and Charles Dickens mashed together. And if that's the kind of thing that you sound remotely interested in, you will love it. And also for your audience, it's a sustained, subtle takedown of academia. So it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's really long. She's also got this book, Piranesi, which is magnificent. So if you're looking for fiction, I'm not saying don't read what Carmen said to read, which will never be better than Chronicles Narnia, but I am just <laughs> offering some more fodder for the mill. Um, the other quick blurb, is, and this is a little bit more general, but I've been thinking a lot as I've moved to New Zealand um, in the last year and and in working in a, in a context that's not only cross-cultural, but multicultural, including a lot of um, conversations and students and colleagues who are Maori, so indig the indigenous people of the land here in New Zealand. And I've long been um, encouraged by and, and seeking to promote reading the Bible with people from other cultural perspectives. Um, but for me, moving to New Zealand has meant a lot more reading of the Bible with people from the Maori perspective and, and broadly uh, an indigenous perspective. And it has been so eye-opening to me. Um, mm -hmm. One of my Maori students, Lisa Knight, did a reading of Genesis in dialogue with the Maori worldview and pointed out all this stuff that I had completely missed about how creation in Genesis 1 uh, acts more like a character in the drama than like inert matter, the way we Westerners think about it. You know, mm. the sun and moon are doing things. The earth is responding to commands. And even on one really obvious reading of Genesis 2, uh, the first man and woman are part of the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. That's mm. all stuff that sounds like crazy talk to me as a Westerner. But Lisa's Mallory informed reading, like totally reshaped the way I thought about that. Since she hasn't published that, um, Danny Zacharias has a great essay called The Land Takes Care of Us in Theologies of Land. The book is Theologies of Land. The essay is The Land Takes Care of Us, where he does a, um, a Native American reading of the creation story and, and makes a lot of similar moves. But I guess the endorsement is just reading scripture with people with different um, cultural and ethnic and geographical backgrounds, and maybe particularly um, indigenous voices, because man, it is really helping me see new things that are there in the text um, that I had missed because of my cultural worldview. Great. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, that's a great endorsement for something that will open your eyes to new things in the text mm. in powerful ways. Uh, and we're grateful for the ways that you've opened our eyes to things that I would have never seen in this text before. I mean, just the passion for justice that we see mm -hmm. here, that's just so easy to flip through these and pages and think, oh, food laws and some festivals <laughs> that we don't celebrate anymore. Um, but you've really drawn out um, some really powerful things. Um, so we're grateful to you and thanks to all of our listeners. And if you appreciated this episode, again, share the word uh, about the two testaments with someone else who might um, profit from this kind of reflection uh, on scripture and the deeper meaning that we can find in texts like this. We appreciate that. You know, one way to do that is to give us a rating on or wherever you listen to podcasts. But another way to do that is just, hey, send somebody a text with a link to an episode or something like that. Uh, that's another way to do it. So thank you for listening. Thanks again to Michael. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.
The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelda, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.